You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Now you roll and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Paul Barnett, and you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we explore leadership through the lens of high-performance sport by interviewing great coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our teams better. Our great coach on this episode is Stuart Lancaster. Stuart played rugby for Leeds and was the first player to reach 100 games for the club. He transitioned into coaching in 2000, initially leading youth teams until he was appointed head coach of Leeds in 2007. From there, he moved into coaching England youth teams before being appointed England head coach in 2011. He took the team to the Rugby World Cup in 2015, where they were unfortunately eliminated in the group stages. Stewart now coaches Leinster Rugby in Dublin, where he has had great success winning the European Champions Cup in 2018 and the Pro 14 in 2018, 2019, 2020 and 2021, and along the way, the Celtic Cup in 2019 and 2020. Stuart is a coach with a deep passion for his craft. He is driven to learn and develop and has visited some of the world's great sporting and leadership organisations in a bid to share his knowledge and acquire theirs. Stuart has experienced some wonderful highs and disappointing lows in his career and this also infuses his story with a healthy dose of humility and unflinching honesty. His philosophy is player-centred and focuses on balancing teaching with in-the-moment feedback, 
and through this he developed strong relationships with his players and the staff around him. The key parts of the interview that connected with me were his view that the great coaches have the capacity to pick the right tool out of the bag at the right time, alongside technical excellence, integrity and a good dose of honesty. How he first deals with disruptive influences within the team by trying to lift their self-awareness through gathering feedback from across the team and presenting it to the athlete. The importance of humility in the team's culture and wanting to leave a legacy where his focus on development has been an inspiration to others and has helped them go on to become coaches as well. This was a great conversation with a coach who has a wide perspective on high performance and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. The Great Coaches Podcast. Stuart Lancaster, good evening and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for the invite. Thank you. Very much looking forward to chatting to you tonight about all things rugby because, of course, it's on at the minute and it's uh, very exciting seeing the Argentinian team turn the tables on the Aussies and the Kiwis. So very keen to get your perspective on that as well as we go along. Yeah, yeah, no, happy happy to give my point of view. Well, just an easy question to kick us off, actually. Where are you in the world and what have you been up to today? So I'm currently in my uh, flat in Dublin. Today is the day after we played Cardiff in the Pro 14, round seven, which we had a good win. Cardiff, a very good team, actually, but we got on top of them in the end, so we won 40 points to five. So today has been uh, into the office, very much reviewing the Cardiff performance, preparing for tomorrow, which is the players are back in, go through the review. I've been preparing the preview of Scarlet's. So we play them, uh, Lenetley Scarlet's play them this Sunday. So doing that, and at the same time, generally reviewing the weekend's rugby. So obviously Ireland played England, Argentina, Australia. So it's been a day of watching rugby, clipping things up, preparing meetings, thinking about selection, chatting with Leo, ready to go tomorrow. Crikey. I feel almost embarrassed having asked you to talk to us on this podcast. Thank you so much (laughs) for carving out some time. It's fine. I'll try to make the questions interesting for you. So I wanted to start by just reflecting on your very long career, all the way back to St. Bees, Wakefield, Scotland, professional at Leeds, and then coaching England senior and junior teams. You must have seen so many good coaches and probably not so good coaches along the way. So I wanted to ask you first up, what is it you think that the great coaches do differently? Yeah, I mean, fortunately, a lot more good than than bad, that's for sure. Very lucky that, you know, my first coach really at school was a guy called Tony Rolt, who came in my sixth form. He really inspired us all. We had a very good team for a very small school, actually. He definitely harnessed our talent and, and pointed us in the right direction. One of the really important qualities in a coach, which was inspiration and motivation. He was definitely directive, but it was probably what we needed at the time. He was technically good. Um... He certainly motivated us. So there are some of the qualities in the, in the first coach I ever had. And then if I go through my career, I think the ones that I really connected with and the ones who really inspired me and I guess I learned the most from were the ones who were forward thinking. So Brian Ashton would be an example, former England coach. You know, He was always, for me, ahead of the game. He was clear in his philosophy. He had an ambitious mindset about the way the game should be played. So he'd be, he'd be one. And then I've coached, at, I guess... Every level of the game. So my son's team, I started coaching my daughter's team when they were under sixes. So if you count that team all the way through to national team, provincial team, I coached at school for six or seven years, coached university level, coached international A team, international age grade teams, county age grade teams. I think the best coaches who I've seen in all those areas, capacity to pick the right 
tool out of the box at the right time, the right coaching style. We often as coaches, we think are more one style than another, but I think the great coaches have the ability to pick a different club out of the bag at the right time, like a great golfer would. Sometimes you're visionary, sometimes you're empowering, sometimes you're democratic, sometimes you're creating a close bond with your group, and sometimes you're coaching them yourself, you're trying to grow leadership, but it's just picking the right tool at the right time. That alongside technical excellence, alongside integrity, and probably a good dose of honesty as well. Sounds like great ingredients to bake a cake. In preparing for this session, I sat through a wonderful online seminar you gave with some other amazing coaches, Jim Gavin and Liz Fallon. But one of the things I did some research when I was following up from that session, and I found this great quote from you, and you said, is the coach principled or are they a principal? And I wanted to ask you, could you just explain that quote a little bit more to us and what it means to you in a coaching context? I think I would operate on coaching principles. So if we take the organisation of our game plan, it's not a specific directive game plan where they have to do what I say, but there are certain parameters and certain principles that which we would defend by, attack by, build our counter-attack structure on, um, work on our transition. And then within the framework and the principles that we set, we expect the players to to make decisions, which are ultimately, I think, influenced by the way in which we train. So I'd be a big John Wooden fan and his philosophy on coaching and leadership as a basketball coach will be someone that would resonate with me. And I firmly believe that the principles that we set out and that we exhibit in our performances a direct correlation to how we, we practice and how we train. So we're a principle-based team without being too rigid, if that makes sense. No, it does. And it's interesting how you took this approach to England and you were credited with overhauling the culture when you got into that team. And I wanted to ask you, what were some of the things you did first when you were rebuilding the culture within that organisation? Well, I think the first thing was, you go back to 2011, 2012. So I got the job, uh, the interim job in November 2011 after the World Cup. People often talk about overhauling the, the culture of the team, but also we needed to come up with a specific style of play. And, and obviously it took a while to embed in, but I'd like to think over the course of the four years I was there, you know, we developed an attacking-based um, style of rugby that resulted in, I think we scored the most tries every Six Nations. We didn't win, unfortunately, but in terms of our attacking mindset, I thought that developed alongside the evolution of the team in terms of experience. So I was actually watching the game this weekend and watching England play Ireland, obviously with a, a good knowledge of both sets of players, having coached both sets of players. And I'm looking at the England team with 800-odd caps in this weekend and Ireland with 400. And when I first started, it was 200 caps in the whole starting team. So the first sort of decision was to try and build a young team and develop it towards 2015, but also way beyond 2015. So the team would, would stay together over an extended period of time. And you know, here we are now, what, eight years later, and pretty much the same group of players, albeit there's some younger lads who've, who've just come through, have created a fantastic England team that are now runners up in a World Cup and I've just won the Six Nations again. So it was the evolution of everything, really. It was the evolution of the, the strategy, the playing style, the age age of a squad, and also trying to change the culture. And just a, young, a younger group of players, too. You know, there's nothing... I always felt it was wrong, the fact that the 2011 team were portrayed in the way they were, because there was a lot of great players and good people in that organisation. And I think over 50% of that team were over 30 going into that World Cup, and it needed a transition to take place. And I guess I made the decision, because I had the interim job and nothing to lose, um, we'll do the transition in one go. Whereas a look at, say, Ireland, Randy Farrell now, he's having to transition out a Rory Best 
or Rob Carney. One or two players are transitioning out and younger players are coming in. Well, I think we decided to do it in one go, which was tough. It was challenging. But ultimately, I think it's benefited England in the long run. I think what you did when you reignited the passion by bringing, was it the letters from the players' families? Yeah, I did. Uh, yeah, lots of little things. I think, yeah, I mean, I'll talk about that, I guess, I'll just to explain it to the listeners. I think a lot of the way in which we tried to reconnect with the grassroots rugby fan, it is genuine. It's where I'd come from. And I think even taking the, the camp to Leeds, to a Yorkshire 2 club and, and, and training there, definitely had a, a connection piece associated with it. I wrote to the parents, as you say, of, of the players and asked them to write back and see what does it mean to see his son play for England? And can you ask five people have helped that player become the England player that he is? And without the players knowing, you've got these amazing messages coming back from grandparents or brothers or sisters or primary school teachers or whoever. You put all five together on certificates and it's very powerful. I think it made the players realise that it is a real privilege to play for your country and it's actually less about you. It's more about what it means to other people. And I think, so that family piece was really important, but also the connection with the grassroots fan definitely had an impact because when we used to arrive at Twickenham, an hour and a half before kickoff, it was absolutely rammed and there were people cheering the team and a genuine sense of connection between the country and, and the team. And you could feel Twickenham, I felt, change during those three or four years to wearing the white shirt with pride and what it means to be English and really passionately getting behind the team. I could really sense that. It wasn't just obviously down to me. It was down to a whole variety of things, down to the players. It was down to the assistant coaches. It was down to the commercial team. It was down to the, the marketing team. It was down to the sponsors. We all pretty much embraced the same philosophy and theme as it gathered momentum using, I guess, the media as well as part of the, the tool to develop it. That's very powerful. I remember playing Wales in 2013. We'd won four and we won there to win the Grand Slam and the championship. And when we played there, it didn't feel like we were just playing against 15 players. It felt like we were playing against the nation. That's what I wanted Twickenham to feel like. And that's what I think happened. And that was why such so devastating to have got that connection piece so moving in the right direction for us not to achieve what we wanted to achieve in the World Cup in, in 2015. I think the momentum that was generated in that period has been maintained and you can still see it now for sure. I was reading recently that one of the books that really connected with you was the Simon Sinek book, actually, Start With Why, which is a quite a prominent business text <laughs> these days. But I wanted to ask you, how did the why of coaching change for you after you left the England job? I guess it never changed, if I'm being honest. Probably if I was to divide my role into leadership coaching and management during my time, um, both as a PE teacher, age grade coach, academy coach, Leeds coach, England Saxons coach, whatever, the proportions have always varied in terms of how much actually physical and technical coaching I'm doing, how much managerial stuff I'm doing and how much leadership I'm doing. And I always try and divide it into sort of percentages, I guess. I think when I look back now and I compare it to the role I'm doing at Leinster. So if I talk about my role now at Leinster, it's my title is senior coach. And genuinely, I'd be 70 to 80 percent of my time is absolutely devoted to coaching. So how can I coach better? What's the next session? What's the game plan? How can I get the best out of the group I've got? And then alongside that, it's, there's a strong element of leadership as well in pointing the direction, reviewing failure when we lose, learning from mistakes, creating a vision for where we can go in the future. Very little managerial work because Leo Cullen, who's the effectively the director of job, he does an amazing job in managing the dynamic between Ireland and Leinster, the academy, 
the A-team games, the board, the media, the commercial partners. He will do all that alongside Geist because the general manager, which frees me up to coach a lot more. If I go back to the England job, I shouldered leadership managerial responsibility and delegated a lot of the coaching. So one of the things I thought a lot about after the World Cup was, and it was it's actually brought home to me with a conversation I had with Jim Collins, who wrote the book Good to Great. I actually met him, amazingly, actually in Denver in 2015. We were on there for the World Cup um, training camp. I'd read his book and I realised he was based in Boulder, Colorado. So out of the blue, I thought, well, I'll take a punt and send an email to his office, which was down the road from the hotel. Anyway, amazingly, his assistant came back and said, no, no, um, Jim's got an hour free tomorrow afternoon. You can pop in. So I popped in and met him and we got chatting about leadership. And he then invited all his staff into the meeting and we had to end up a three-hour brainstorming session on leadership, which was amazing, really. Anyway, he followed my sort of career and he sent me a note after the World Cup and said, oh, we must reconnect. So we arranged a Zoom call. And he went on to tell me the story of how he'd mentored Steve Jobs. He said, he told me the story that he'd been sacked by Apple. And 12 years later, he'd gone back and he'd, he'd become, you know, obviously the CEO of Apple and created Apple, you know, what we know now. And I said to him, I said, yeah, but what did he do in those 12 years? Secretly hoping I wasn't going to be 12 years out of a job. And he said, um, he actually went away and thought about what is his passion and he reconnected with his passion. And I think what I thought a lot about in that period was, what's my reason why? What do I really enjoy? Well, my first love was teaching and coaching. So let's try and find a role where I'm actually physically teaching and coaching. I know I can do the managerial stuff and I know the other stuff I can do as well. But what I really want to do, because I'd put myself, worked hard for four years and ultimately we never got what we wanted and put my family under a lot of pressure. So that's why the Leinster role was almost the perfect role because it combined that passion of coaching with leadership and then the lead, the managerial stuff Leo does brilliantly. I want to talk about Leinster. If I could, I'd just like to talk about that study trip you did because in 2016, you head off around the world and you get to spend time with the Atlanta Falcons, British Cycling, the English FA, rugby in New Zealand. I mean, it's a it's an amazing experience. And what did you take or learn most from meeting all of those great organisations? I know it's probably an impossibly <laughs> right question, but I'm really interested to see what you took away from it and what you remember now. Well, I'll try and give you a quick snapshot on each one, which might help the coaches out there. Um, Atlanta Falcons, obviously, and have been a, um, an American football giant at the time. I mean, they, they got to the Super Bowl after the second year I was there at final. Um, the size of the, the culture and the organisations, the number of players that Dan Quinn as the head coach had to, had to deal with, the complexity of the sport. Probably something that really surprised me was how directive it was as a coaching style. Very little interaction or very little two-way conversation between players and coaches. And I think Dan was doing his best to, to improve that dynamic to make sure it was more player-centred organisation. I think they were head-on analysis and things like how they prepared for meetings, the, the, the work they did, the detail that went into plays and everything else. So and it was just a fascinating couple of weeks, obviously, particularly because I was trying to advise them on how to improve uh, their defence coaching. So British Cycling was a different... There was a review of the culture of British Cycling and I was invited on to the panel to review British Cycling in 2016. So that, was, that wasn't just a one-stop visit. That was a extended period of interviews and a good example of, I guess, how when a couple of key characters left British Cycling, they hadn't really thought it through about how they're going to succession plan. So that was a really interesting project to be involved in. And then the trip to the Southern Hemisphere, there was many, many teams I visited. I guess it was quite reassuring that all of them were going through their own challenges as well as I was going through my own. Everyone gave something different. I remember Wayne Bennett saying to me, the rugby league coach, he said, wherever you go next to you, make sure you 100% want to go and they 100% want you to come. So that was a little gem he gave me in the lead up to actually joining Leinster. I took something from 
Western Force, I went to Western Force, I went to Melbourne Rebels, I went to the Waratahs, to the Roosters, I went to Hawthorne, see Alistair Clarkson, great AFL coach. So lots of learnings. And then, yeah, the opportunity at Leinster came up in September that year. Stuart, if you ever go on one of those again and you need someone to carry your bags, <laughs> I would gladly volunteer for that job. What I, an I think experience. What, what was best, actually, interesting. I, I, went, I went first to say, I'm happy to share my story and tell you what I've learned from from my experience. And I think by going and offering something to start with, I definitely think that helped build trust and open doors for a two-way conversation. So I didn't just go and say, you know, you tell me, please tell me what you guys do. I went and said, listen, why don't I share what I think I learned from coaching England for four years to you guys. So I felt I was trying to add value as well as learn from them as well. And I think that definitely was a good, a good way to go about it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Clearly it was. I'd like to just talk about your coaching philosophy for a second, if I could, because I heard you describe it recently as uh, no egos, hard work, be humble, respectful, work as a team which is a great summary, I think, of what you've been able to achieve at Lannister and, and earlier in your career as well with all the success you've had along the way. But interestingly, in that quote, you start off with no egos. And so often in teams, there can be disruptive egos within a team. And I wanted to ask you if you found any methods more successful than others in dealing with disruptive peer pressure. Yeah, I've been, I've been pretty lucky, really. There's not been many teams I've been in where there's been that, that sort of personality or that dynamic. That said, and you don't want to suppress individual personality anyway and I do think sport the sport of rugby really is the ultimate team sport um when I have experienced it the disruptive sort of ego environment or or the person who is who's driven by their own ego they tend not to last long because the group usually find them out and, and kick them out but often the most talented actually so they're always given the benefit of doubt so what I've tried to do when I have had one or two people like that Give them some feedback, first and foremost, both, and try and raise their self-awareness of the behaviours that they're demonstrating, because often they don't realise it. So I would, I have a basic questionnaire that they would fill in on how they're perceived, uh, how they think they're perceived, and I would fill it on on, on my impression of them, um, on some behavioural standards. And that's all well and good as well, but they'll believe that, well, you're just a coach, you know, you've, you've clearly got a bias for you, I'm not like that. So I would then do, I would then gather feedback from maybe five to 10 other people in the organisation. So that could be the physio, the head conditioner, the kit manager, a couple of senior players, a couple of younger players, and collate all this information and present it back to the player who's perhaps needs to be more team-focused. And usually at that point, the penny begins to drop that they need to change their behaviours to fit in. But also, 
If you've got a values-based organization like Leinster has, for example, you simply need to draw attention to the fact that actually we're not living the values here. If you're self-centered and you're only interested in the promotion of yourself and it's all about you, that's hardly going to fit in with the values of being humble, being a brother or whatever the, the team values are. So yeah, I do find that if you have got someone like that, often 360 degree feedback um, delivered in the right way usually creates the change that you need. If that doesn't happen, um, then you need to start thinking about moving the player on because there's nothing I've seen more divisive than a player who thinks is above the, the values of the team. You talk about values there and I'd like to ask you about them because you've just finished your fifth season at Leinster and they've, they're now a dominant club within the European rugby. Continued success and it doesn't look like stopping uh, given the results you've got at the minute. But what are the values that are non-negotiable within that team? Yeah, we've got three values that, that underpin the, the club, which I probably won't share all of them because they're the players' values. Humble, humble we want in that, not humble passive and not humble we bow, we cower to everyone, but it's a humility about always wanting to get better. I think one of the real strengths of Leinster, for example, is their desire to want to get better. They, they have a very strong connection with each other because 95% of the team is from Leinster. So it's a, it's a homegrown team with the addition of two or three carefully selected overseas players. So to have the success that Leinster has based on one provincial area and to win 26 games straight in the Pro 14 and three titles on the bounce, European Cup four times. It's phenomenal, really, for a homegrown team. But that level of identity, that level of cohesion, is the reason why Leinster is successful. So I think that sort of desire to want to get better is a really key quality in the group. Um, I think the senior players drive a very high standard and hold each other to account. And I think the younger players who are becoming the senior players, they're growing as leaders and we're actively trying to grow them as leaders so they become the future leaders, and so the cycle continues. We never get to the situation where we've got an ageing team and we fall off the edge of a cliff and have to start from the bottom and work our way up again. It's like one or two off at the top and some younger lads coming in the bottom and we're constantly looking to evolve and grow the leadership. So I think that would be a big factor. I think the way in which you train, I would say this because I'm a coach, but I genuinely believe the way in which you train has a direct correlation to the way in which you play. The players are hungry to want to be challenged in training they want to get better. They want to feel pressure so that they know that when the game comes on a weekend, they can deliver under pressure. And there's nothing more than I like than sitting down and designing sessions and trying to think of consistency of content, but variety in the content to deliver that challenge that creates the diamonds under pressure. Can I ask you then about these infamous stew days, which have become part of coaching law with you at Lannister? Could you take us through a normal, if there is such a word, a stews day. Am I pronouncing it correctly? Stew days. The first week I arrived at Leinster, the defence coach had left late in pre-season and I think it was the first league game had taken place and he left after the first league game. He suddenly had to return um, to New Zealand. I got a phone call out the blue from Leo Cullen and said, would you like to come over? Anyway, so I came over and within a week I was coaching and I arrived on the Monday and we were playing Glasgow on the Friday. So once Leo introduced me to 55 players, we didn't really have time for debate. I said, right, let's have a look at our defence. I've clipped up some games that you played last week um, against Treviso and the Pro 14 final against um, Connor, which we lost, and a couple of games from the European campaign where we'd struggled. And I basically threw the gauntlet down to them and said, what are you doing here? Why would you be defending like this? And anyway, I could see them sort of look, look at me a bit shocked because I was so blunt. I said, listen, we need to get this sorted. So anyway, 
cool long story short, we had an indoor session where we talked through the concepts. And then we went down to Donnybrook, um, the AstroTurf down there. And I think they expected like a walk and talk and we'll gradually build in with some drills and, you know, we'll feel our way into the session. But before they knew it, they were in three teams and they were going absolutely flat out, attack versus defence, decision-making, me coaching in the moment, um, a lot of unstructured games, very little time for rest or recovery, certainly no time for debate. And that, I guess, spawned the title um, as Tuesday. It was actually a Monday, but... You know, if we've got a Saturday, Saturday turnaround, Sunday's off, Monday's review day, fix-up day, relative light training because we're still recovering. But Tuesday's the big day. Tuesday's the day that we can really work and hone our skills under pressure. So I expect maximum concentration, maximum intensity. I want to challenge them with lots of different decision-making games, some of which are defence-orientated, some are attack-orientated. Every player will be involved in the session. It basically sets the standard with which we will prepare and play it on a weekend. So it's not the only bit of coaching, obviously, during the week, but it's the bit that I think really can make the difference on the weekend. Clearly it has been. You talked about cohesion before, and I wanted to just circle back to that because the reality is you have so many of your players at Leinster off on international duty. There's a lot of rotation. And I'm wondering how do you keep that cohesion strong and live with so much change within the team? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a good point because we, I think we've, this season alone, I think we've used over 45 players. Last season, I think we used 57. We've got, as you say, 15, 16, 17 players away at the moment with, with Ireland. Um, it's an ever-changing team. But I'll come back to the same point. It's the way in which we train. You know, I think there's often a lot of teams I would have visited or teams I've coaches I've spoken to where you tend to prioritise just the starters. If you're not in the starting team, then you get very little attention during the course of the week. What we tend to do is give everyone maximum opportunity to get involved in every training session. Sometimes at the detriment of the starting team, we bank on the fact that over a period of time, the cohesion that we develop means that it's almost seamless. Like one one player steps out and another player steps in and everyone understands the flow and the, the style of rugby we're trying to play. I think looking at, say, Exeter Chiefs, who've just won the double in, in England, one of the most impressive things about, obviously, Exeter was, was not just the double, but it was the, the games that they played post-lockdown without their star players against other premiership teams, that they still won. And they, they'd be very similar. You can always tell an extra team, irrespective of who's playing, because of the levels of cohesion. And I think we're lucky at Leinster because, as I say, we've got a homegrown team. But that doesn't just give you it. It's the way in which you train and the integration of your players in your training session that creates that level of cohesion that means you can chop and change and not have too much of a drop-off in levels of performance. Stuart, I wanted to ask you about your principles as a coach. You've been coaching for a long time. You've got a teaching background, so you're very structured in the way you go about engaging with athletes. But has there ever been a time in your coaching career where your principles as a coach were challenged? And if so, what advice would you have for others that might find themselves in that position? I'll probably refer back to the answer I gave not so long ago, and it happened twice. My principles weren't necessarily challenged, but I probably when you've got a hand on the tiller and uh, it's your team but you're less in your hand on the tiller because you're looking at other you're looking at the bigger picture or whatever else I remember once there was a good friend of mine a very good coach John Fletcher who we'd grown up together as academy coaches he was the academy coach in Newcastle and I was the academy coach at Leeds and we both actually became young directors of rugby he was at Newcastle I was at Leeds 35 years old and at Leeds I remember same sort of thing happening in that I got so busy with recruitment or selection or building the bigger picture and developing the academy I probably took my hand off the coaching till a little bit. That's not to say I didn't agree with what the other coaches were doing, but he once said to me, 
it doesn't quite look like a Stuart Lancaster team. We played against each other many times. And he said it didn't quite look like a Stuart Lancaster team. And I knew what he meant in that I'd allowed myself to sort of drift a little bit away from the hand on the tiller in terms of the coaching of the team. So that's not compromising your principles. It's more making sure your principles are lived through the team that you coach. And I think that's what I would always fight for now. If I was to go to a different role, for example, the new owner said to me, what do you want your role to be? My first point would be, I want to be a hands-on coach first and foremost. If I can do all the stuff, which hopefully I can and add value both at the top of the organisation and at the academy level of the organisation, then I 100% will. But ultimately, I want to be on the coaching field, shaping the way in which we play the game. Because ultimately, you can develop everything in and around the team. But at the level I've coached at or I'm coaching at, it is about winning. And if you're going to be the head coach, you want to win and you want to develop the team to win in your way, not a hybrid of your way. Talking about winning... When you beat Scarlet in the final a few years ago, there was this great quote from you, and I'd like to, to read it to you if I could. At the corner of my eye, I saw Issa Nasiwa stood by the side watching it unfold. It was such a, such a special moment, and they are the things I love as a coach, knowing we have done it together, but it is their moment. And I wanted to ask you, from the context of that quote, what is it the legacy that you want to leave as a coach? Well, there's a, there's a bit of a backstory, which I probably should share about that quote, because it was actually taken from a story we'd told, or I'd told, in the lead-up to that game about the Shawshank Redemption, uh, about Andy Dufresne, who was obviously put in prison. And he was asked to do the tax return for the guard. And they asked, what do you want? And he said, for all his prison mates to have a beer. But he didn't have one. Andy Dufresne didn't have one. And he just wanted to sit back and see these guys who were in prison for various reasons having that one beer and that sense of satisfaction that he took from seeing the people who he was in jail with uh, having that beer was ultimately what it meant for him. And Kevin Sinfield, the Leeds Rhinos um, captain, he's now the head coach, well, the director of rugby, um, he told that story about how that's what winning meant to him, that peace and tranquility that you get in a change room after the game um, that only lasts for maybe 30 minutes where there's just you, the players, the beers, the music, the trophy or whatever it is, that moment, they're the moments that you crave, really. And Issa had finished his career at uh, Leinster with that win. So we'd won the double. So we had a, an Irish band playing in the Intercontinental in Dublin. And it was about one o'clock in the morning and everyone's dancing around and beers are flowing. It's a brilliant evening, family, friends, everyone who you cared about was in there. And at the corner I spotted him, just sat there leaning against the wall, watching all without a beer. It was his Andy Dufresne moment. And uh, for me... To give him that moment probably meant was not not just him, but the players that moment. I was quite happy to leave leave at that point, go away with my wife, my kids, sit on holiday for a week and then enjoy the moment, have a beer myself, then roll my sleeves up and do it all over again. Because we had it with England, you know, a few times, but one particularly memorable time, we beat France in France and I think the bus was late or we were late to get away from the change room. We stayed in the change room with the music on and beers and they're the best moments. But I'm not going to let you off the hook. What's the legacy that you'd really like to leave behind you as a coach? So I want to coach as long as I can. What I really enjoy, so obviously to develop, keep developing as a coach, keep keep working with great players, keep helping players get better, working in great teams, winning things, obviously. But also what I'm finding rewarding now is that the players I used to coach have become coaches. So if I would, so I spoke to Lee Black at Wasp not too long ago, I spoke to Stuart Hooper from Bath, not too long ago. I spoke to George Skivington from Gloucester not too long ago. I spoke to uh, Jeff Parlin, who's coaching in Australia not too long ago. So there's lots of 
lots of those players come through, which I find very rewarding to be able to, in the same way that people mentored me, um, supported me and passed on their experience. And, you know, I'm talking about the likes of Bill Bezik, Kevin Bowring, Brian Ashton, who are now early 70s. Um, love to be able to pass on what I've learned as a coach, as a leader, um, once I've finished, although I've still hopefully got a fair way to go. Stuart Lancaster, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you so much for talking to us tonight. All the best for the rest of the Pro 14. And uh, hope to see you somewhere in the world again on a study tour one day with me holding your bags. No problem. Thanks for the invite. Hi, everyone. It's Paul here. And you have been listening to the great coach, Stuart Lancaster. Some of the key points for me were the story he shares of asking the parents of the players in the England team to write to their sons and share what it means for them to see them playing for England. Of how he reflected on his larger purpose and passion after finishing as the coach of England and how this led him back to teaching and coaching. And the amazing coaching study trip he went on that took him to the Atlanta Falcons in America, British Cycling, the English FA and Hawthorne and the Western Force in Australia. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And just before we go, coaches are not usually the type of people who seek the spotlight. And so if you can put us in contact with a great coach that you know has lessons to share on leadership and life, then we would love to hear from you. You can contact us using the details in the show notes. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.